Good morning. Good to see you all here. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. Nehemiah 2, verse 18. Um, Tonight, uh, the DVD series continues on Samson, 6 p.m., Finger Foods as normal. Uh, Andrea is uh, the contact person for prayer chain. You see her uh, number there. Uh, Financial note, Acts and Facts are here for July. Uh, Always good, so take advantage of that. You'll see the care package uh, box collection there in the foyer uh, for the soldiers in Afghanistan. Uh, Dale and Pam's grandson, Jacob, serving uh, there. So you can read the rest of that. There's a list there on the helps board. SGBA Youth Camp coming in July. Well, tomorrow's July, and Youth Camp is 14 days days away. So uh, I don't know if anybody here today is involved in that or not, but if if you haven't got your act together by now you need to get rolling so um did we ever get any uh, application forms or anything they're all online this year oh are they because somebody said something about we never got them in the mail or this does somebody we, i can make sure they get a paper copy oh well we just wondered if there was some no, there's some missing things from there, there was there was some hiccup missing mail okay. something happened and okay yeah we'll but <laughs> so but uh, anyways, so um, if you have a question, uh, certainly Jared or I think Laura still knows enough about it to answer a questions. So uh, I know she's, she's um, I, I can say this because she's not here, she's um, struggling a little with her lack of involvement. I'll just put it that way. And uh, uh, she'll, she'll be involved in some way. Um, certainly uh, if you're not involved in the, camp program remember to pray for that because it's a difficult week it's a difficult time leading up to it there's always stuff lost in the mail and other things um and then uh uh, pastor dean uh is i don't know about this year but other years he's like landed on the airplane from who knows where and raced here and spent the week so there's uh there's fatigue issues and all those things um, but pray that the, that God would uh, bless that effort because it's a it's a big effort. Okay, off my soapbox and on to. If you want to get the job done, give the job to a busy person. <laughs> well, okay, I, I'm thinking of that in terms of myself. I am I would consider myself a busy person. Do not count on me to get something done for you. <laughs> Our scripture for meditation is from the psalm this morning. 107, Psalm 107, read 1 through 16.
Let's stand together and open with prayer. Tom, can I ask you today? Thanks. Take your brown hymnals and turn to number 501 in the brown, 501. And while you're turning, a couple of things. Um, my minions aren't here today, so if you think that they're going to pick the favorite hymn today, they're not because they're not here. So start thinking about that. And also, we are camping this week. So um, I do get text messages for the prayer chain, but if there is a real emergency like right now, right now, Maybe contact someone else, maybe Terry or Pastor directly. Just, I will get them eventually, but it might take me a little, there might be a little lag time, just so you're aware. So 501 in the brown.
seated. Do we have a favorite hymn this morning? Look at all those hymns. I gave you fear. Oh, Diane, I gave you fear warning. <laughs> Say it one more time. I missed it. I'm sorry. 522 in the brown sheet. Thanks. Okay, 522. He lifted me. And do we have a reason for this one this morning? Um, I'm just thankful. 522. For being lifted by the Lord
Scripture reading this morning, Nehemiah 1, we'll be reading verses 11 through 20. I think it's Nehemiah 2. Is it? I think it's Nehemiah 2. Pastor? Uh, yes, I, he, the Bible is open to 2 okay. here, so it's Nehemiah 2, 11 through 20. And are you the reader today? Okay, great. Come on Here we stand. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few men. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The, official, the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. But when Sanballat, the Horonite, Tobiah, the Ammonite official, and Geshem, the Arab, heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing? They asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding, but as for you... You have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. Take your brown hymnals again and turn to number 478, 478.
Charles Wesley knew how to write hymns, didn't he? Wow, great stuff. Our text is Nehemiah 2, verse 11 and following. In our last time together, we looked at Nehemiah's role as cupbearer to King Artaxerxes and how he used that position to make his requests to return to Jerusalem. Before approaching the king, the scripture tells us he had prayed for four months concerning his desire to return to Jerusalem. And just before he spoke to the king, he prayed again. This man was a man of prayer. He knew that God was behind the historical events of Israel's captivity and judgment. He knew that the heart of the king is in God's hand to turn it wherever God pleases. So, you know, he's praying for Israel's sin. We're the ones that caused all this trouble on ourselves. But he's also praying that the king will have a heart, a disposition to allow them to return because he knows that God is the one that controls potentates. Artaxerxes was Esther's stepson. It is very likely that Esther was still alive at this time. If she were, she would be in her late 40s. So there was the godly influence then of Esther behind the throne of Artaxerxes. And secondly, there was Nehemiah's own trusted position as cupbearer to the king. He was a trusted advisor right in the middle of the Persian court. I want you to think about that. God has his people everywhere. And wherever you find yourself, you should be in a position to advance the cause of God and his people. I remember with regard to the book of Esther that his cousin Mordecai said to her, Who knows but that you have come to a royal position for such a time as this. Wow, think about that. God moved things for them and for Esther to be brought before the king as his bride for the very position of being able to speak on behalf of the persecuted Jewish people. And because the gracious hand of God was on him, Nehemiah received his request from Artaxerxes And he was sent to Jerusalem as the governor. Nehemiah's life exhibited the kind of person who could be trusted. He had no ambition higher than being a servant. But God exalted him. God exalted him. We drew out the lesson that the prayer of righteous people is powerful and effective. Keep that in mind. And also the truth that we are cupbearers to the king of kings. We're responsible to serve him with the same kind of fidelity and honesty and loyalty as Nehemiah served his earthly king. Well, today's study picks up with Nehemiah's arrival in Jerusalem and what he did in preparation for his great work. Let us ask the Lord to illuminate our minds. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege of studying this Old Testament story this book of Nehemiah. 
And these men are put in the scripture and their works are put in the scripture just not so we can laud and praise the heroes of the faith, but so that we can see how you used men, just ordinary men, to accomplish great works for yourself. That is an encouragement to us because guess what, Lord? We see ourselves as just ordinary people. Not many mighty, not many noble, Paul says. Not many of great renown. Just normal people God called to be in his church, be part of the program of God. I pray that we'll see that. Let us not be guilty of saying, I'm too weak, I'm too young, I'm too little, I'm too unknowledgeable to do anything great for God. Let us be humble enough to say that with God, all things are possible, and God can use even me. I pray, Lord, that you'll bless these truths to our heart. Be with our sister churches this morning and help them too. Amen. We're looking at Nehemiah's arrival in Jerusalem. Verse 9 tells us that upon his arrival, Nehemiah delivered the letters from Artaxerxes. Now he's the Persian Persian emperor. He delivered this uh, letter to the governors of the trans-Euphrates region, which according to verse 7 contained orders from the king to grant Nehemiah and his entourage Safe passage to Judah. Now just how much conversation went on between Nehemiah and these governors, how much information was exchanged, we do not know. But the fact that Artaxerxes felt compelled to include army officers and a cavalry of armed soldiers, verse 9, to escort Nehemiah, I think that demonstrates in some measure that Nehemiah was not about to be welcomed in Jerusalem with open arms. <laughs> I mean, why, uh, why encase him with soldiers and, and a military entourage? Ezra refused to ask this king for an escort. Remember, they're contemporaries, Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra refused the escort because he was ashamed, the scripture says, he was ashamed to do so since he had, he had been boasting to the king of God's protection and care for his people. Ezra 8 verse 22, you can read about it. The dangers which faced Ezra were bandits because Ezra's caravan was carrying millions of dollars worth of gold and silver articles to replenish the temple in Jerusalem. Chapter 8 verse 31. So he... He was a bit timid about the whole situation. He was carrying a lot of money. But Nehemiah's problems were different. There was no caravan of wealth, no fortune that he was carrying. His was a political mission. What he carried were letters of authority which would change the balance of power in the entire trans-Euphrates region. Those little mini potentates who ruled in the place of Artaxerxes, but under his authority, were not going to be happy that a newcomer was arriving who was now appointed governor of Judea. Nehemiah 5 verse 14. I mean, previously, 
they had governed Judea. But now Artaxerxes was splitting this region off from their control and assigning it to Nehemiah. Nehemiah tells us why these governors would not relinquish Judea without a confrontation. If you look at chapter 5, verse 15, Nehemiah says, The earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver, that's about one pound of silver, from them in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lorded it over the people. Wow. So something radical is changing here. And this, as you see, was a money thing and it was a power thing. These pagan governors were sticking it to the Israelites. They were milking them out of their livelihood through excessive taxation, thereby keeping them in a position financially where they could never get ahead. And on top of that, they liked to lord it over them and keep the Israelites in a constant state of subjection. So all was not pleasant for these exiles just because the Persian king Cyrus had decreed that, yeah, you can return home. Go home. If you want to go home, go home. Well, home was not the same as being free. They were slaves in their own homeland, still impoverished, still humiliated by the local yokels. Now in comes Nehemiah with letters authorizing these governors to relinquish some of their control over the region to Nehemiah. Not only must they acquiesce to Artaxerxes' command to accept Nehemiah as the new governor, but they must guarantee his safety. This did not sit very well with them. So even if the conversation between Nehemiah and these governors was casual and brief, enough information was exchanged that word leaked out to the two officials who, as we shall see, became arch enemies of Nehemiah and his efforts to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. I'm referring, verse 10, when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, namely about Nehemiah's arrival, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. They didn't like that. Now they didn't know the whole mission of Nehemiah because in verse 12 Nehemiah tells us, I had not told anyone what my God had put into my heart concerning Jerusalem. Uh, But they knew enough to surmise that Nehemiah's mission had something to do with promoting the welfare of the Israelites. At the very least, they probably thought of their loss of revenue and their loss of dictatorial control over the people. 
Their leaders showed this. Sanballat. That's a Babylonian name meaning Sin, S-I-N, the moon god of the Babylonians. Sin has given life. That's what Sanballat's name means. Sin. Not moral sin, but the sin of idolatry. Sanballat was a native of Beth Horon, a city just 12 miles northwest of Jerusalem, which guarded the road to Jerusalem. According to Joshua 10, verse 10. In Joshua 16, we learn that it was in the territory of Ephraim. Sanballat was the chief political adversary of Nehemiah. He was the governor of Samaria, a region just to the north of Jerusalem, if you know anything about your geography, chapter 4. A papyrus letter discovered in the Elephantine settlement in Egypt, written years and years before to the governor of Judah, refers to, and I'm quoting, Deliah and Shemaliah, the sons of Sanballat, the governor of Samaria. Oh, he's the governor? And now Artaxerxes is sending in Nehemiah to become the governor? Hmm. Is that going to go well? Now Jerusalem was just outside of Sanballat's jurisdiction, but it was close enough to his government that he considered it a threat to his rule if it were going to be refortified. San Babylonia. Tobiah, the other guy, his name means the Lord is good. He was a proselyte to Judaism. His nationality was that of the Ammonites. Oh boy. One of those wicked pagan nations which dwelt in Palestine and which was involved with the intermarriage problems which Ezra is going to confront in chapter 9. Tobiah's son, Jehoahan, was married to the daughter of Neshulun, son of Berkiah, the leader of one of the Israelite groups which would later be responsible for repairing a section of the wall. Nehemiah 3, verse 4, verse 30. Tobiah also had close relationships with Eliashib, the priest, as we will study later in chapter 13. Bottom line here in all of this history is that Tobiah's Ammonite family was intermarried with a number of prominent Israelites. He was a professed worshiper of Jehovah, okay, but his political aspirations overrode his religious convictions. Tobiah was likely one of the governors of the trans-Euphrates region, although we can't be sure about that. What we are sure of is that he worked hand-in-hand with Sanballat to oppose the reconstruction, the refortification of Jerusalem. So you wouldn't exactly put him in the friend court of Nehemiah. I think Tobiah is a good example of a bad Christian. Like Tobiah, the professing Jew, there are professing Christians whose allegiance to God and Jesus Christ is only as deep in 
as thick as a dollar bill. So long as God doesn't interfere with their plans to make money, to grab power, to make a name for themselves in the community, then they're willing to be Christians. But if someone comes along, if something comes which is good business, we'll put that in quotes, even if it means forfeiting the worship of God on the Lord's day, they'll just take that business and open it on Sunday or open their shops to be competitive with other businessmen because, hey, it's nothing personal. It's business. Or even if we were to move away from the business motif for a moment, we see how Tobiah's family had intermarried its way into the Jewish religion, yet all the while not being totally committed to Jehovah at all. He played the game of religion to get what he wanted. Worst of all, the true Israelites let him play the game in their own backyard. Themselves disobeying God by giving their daughters to his family in marriage in violation of God's prohibition against intermarriage. Believer marrying unbeliever. Now you can't tell me that a person loves God when he is doing all those kind of things. I think Tobiah was an enemy of Israel, plain and simple. No matter how much he feigned allegiance to God. He bore a name meaning the Lord is gracious. That's what Tobiah means. But his own mode of operation was fraught with deception, wheeling and dealing, lies, subterfuge, thereby denying the grace of God in his life. How foolish we Christians are to think that we can disobey the word of God through our pagan associations and ungodly behavior and then still claim to be disciples of Jesus Christ. It's done all the time in the United States. Our Lord put it very bluntly. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his mother and father, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, and yes, his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Luke 14, verse 26. Well, Tobiah was no disciple, though he tried to give the appearance through his religious affiliation. His was a passion for power and position. And I don't think that we are Christians when Christ is not first in our life over our own passions and desires. Now the question comes, what would you do if you were Nehemiah? And you were aware that your presence in Jerusalem was violently opposed by all the local governors. Well, Nehemiah wrote verse 10, so he obviously had some awareness of the opposition that he was facing. If if Tobiah was one of the trans-Euphrates governors to whom he gave a letter from King Artaxerxes, 
he lost the element of surprise. I mean, at least to the degree that he revealed his intentions. Why he had come to Jerusalem, he's, going to, he's there to help the Jews, and Tobias doesn't like that. Uh-uh. So this is not going to be an easy task for a godly man. So what do we find? Well, without some grand announcement, Nehemiah gathered a handful of men and one horse. And we are told, verse 13, by night he toured the entire outer perimeter of Jerusalem, the scripture says, examining the walls which had been broken down. That's under the siege of Nebuchadnezzar, you remember, when the Israelites were taken into captivity, Babylonian captivity. Nebuchadnezzar powdered the walls. He smashed them down. So this is what Nehemiah is examining. Examining the walls which had been broken down and its gates which had been destroyed by fire. Well, I'm sure there's the remains of the gates were there. Beginning at Valley Gate, it proceeded to Jackal Wall, which in modern times would be the Pool of Siloam. Then to Dung Gate, which led to the Valley of Hinnom, a dump just outside of the city of Jerusalem. Then on to Fountain Gate and King's Pool. King's Pool was built by Hezekiah to irrigate the gardens by building underground aqueducts into the Kidron Valley. They did do some wonderful things. And then finally back to Valley Gate, verse 15. When the rubble was so intense that even his horse could not navigate through the broken stones... Nehemiah still proceeded on foot to examine the walls, verse 14 and 15. No one was told about this inspection. It was done at night. He had not even taken the Jewish officials into his confidence, verse 16. Not because he distrusted them, but because he wanted to be sure of the state of the project before he spoke. We should always know our facts, brethren, before we speak. And most assuredly, before we make public announcements. When Nehemiah said, verse 17, You see the trouble we are in. No Israelite could contradict him. They could not say, well, we know the trouble we're in, but you don't. You've been living on easy street in the palace somewhere. You don't have a clue what's going on around here. Well, he did have a clue what was going on around here. He had done his homework. Through a first-hand inspection of the city, he knew exactly the magnitude of the damage done to the walls and the gates in the overthrow. He knew what it would take to rise, excuse me, to raise these walls out of the rubble once again. And he says, Come, let us rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. It's never enough, brethren, to state the obvious. Verse 17. Jerusalem lies in ruin. Well, yeah, okay. What's to be done about it? That's the question. For the servant of God, it is always the question. You and I should never be content 
with analysis. Well, let's say this. We see that, and you know how we do. Sometimes I think we can analyze things to death. We, we can scratch, or rather search, the ins, the outs, the pros, the cons, the ups, the downs. Until we're sick and tired of statistics. But this doesn't get us anywhere. Once we know our duty, let's get to it. Come. Let us rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. We know what the problem is. Now let's do something about it. Verse 18. They replied, let us start rebuilding. And so they began the good work. No more talk. Let's start cleaning stones, striking lines, mixing mud with trowels in hand. Let us begin to reset the walls. As an encouragement to the workers, Nehemiah told them how God had graciously provided for his coming and the fact that the king himself was behind the project. Verse 18. This was, I think, very important information because verse 19, Sanballat, Tobiah, a third official, Geshem, the Arab, they were mocking them, saying, are you rebelling against the king? Well, of course they weren't. Because these officials knew nothing of Artaxerxes' approval of the project. All they knew was that the king had appointed Nehemiah as governor. He had letters to show that he was given permission to rebuild those walls. You don't say everything, you know. You don't tell everything you know to the enemy. (laughs) That's for sure. Tremendous lessons here. One lesson is this. There is a time in every Christian endeavor... When investigation and analysis must end and the work begin. Within but three days of arriving in Jerusalem, verse 11, Nehemiah took it upon himself to investigate the deplorable state of his beloved city, which lie in ruins, and to come up with a plan to remedy it. God's work needs this kind of resolution. I'm not talking about A quick fix with shoddy workmanship just to get something done or something off the ground. But I'm talking about the next immediate step necessary to get on with the work. Too too often we want to think about something. My dad would say, until the cows come home. (laughs) I don't know where he got that. Is that a Pennsylvania Dutch expression or did you have that out here in Michigan too? Until the cows come home. And even then, we're not sure what to do or when to do it. This indecision on our part may be due to poor leadership or with the fact that people are fearful of the unknown, so they don't have enough facts, they think, or simply a timidity to launch out with something new. Well, we've never done that before. But here, I think, is where our God calls us to an act of faith. With faith, you don't always see the outcome in bold relief. 
there may be some questions that are unanswered as to procedure or goals, but one thing we know, God will honor faith. Did Nehemiah know that when he incited the people to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, he was in for the battle of his life against these Persian officials who opposed him? I don't think so. Did he comprehend all the dirty tricks these men would do to sabotage the work? Again, I don't think so. Then how could he proceed without an accurate forecast of all the coming trouble? Verse 20. I answered them by saying, The God of heaven will give us success. We his servants will start rebuilding. What a tremendous affirmation of faith in God. God will give us success. It's up to us to start rebuilding. I read that and I thought, wow. There's so much truth here. Isn't it the starting that we are often defeated. We quit before we start. We talk ourselves out of service to God by talking up all the possible what-if troubles. We forget God and the work that he's called us to do. The Sanballats and the Tobias and the Geshems hold more clout with us than God And that evidence is infidelity on our part and what I'm going to call irrational fear. John taught his people, God is greater than our hearts. He knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we obey his commands and do what pleases him. 1 John 3, verse 20 and 21. What part of the Christian ministry do you see might be deficient at Thornville? Visitation program, children's activity program, a work project still unfinished. We got some of them. Are we going to continue to talk ourselves out of service in these areas because we have our fears, we have our doubts of our abilities. We need to stop talking and trust God for the outcome and go to the work. Get it done. And then secondly, when God is in a work, either because it is something he has ordained us to do or because it is something done for his honor and glory, then the work is considered a good work. It's a good work. You know that the word good has moral overtones, doesn't it? We think of something being good because there is a sense in which what is referred to is pleasant as opposed to miserable or righteous as opposed to wicked. Years ago when I was driving bus, there was this crusty old woman who would get on my bus regularly 
And as she was boarding, I would say to her, Good morning! And her response would be, What is so blankety blank blank good about it? (laughs) Well, not to be undone, I proceeded to tell her that God had allowed her to see the sunrise of a new day in her life. Or that she was walking better this morning than I had seen her with her arthritis before. Something, anything to direct her off her misery and to give her a perspective on the morning that she didn't have because of the bitterness of her soul. If you're bitter in your soul, it colors how you see things. And we see what we want to see sometimes. And goodness is not always innate in the thing itself, but in the eyes of the beholder. Nehemiah said that the rebuilding of the walls, which his people began, was a good work. Verse 18. Well, I asked the question, why was it a good work? Well, it wasn't because... It was pleasant work. No. Was it pleasant as opposed to miserable? Masonry work is some of the hardest, dirtiest, most tiring work to be done. And it's even worse if you're working using old blocks and old stone which have to have the old pointing chiseled off of them. I think Dale knows something about that. So rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem was not a good work because of its pleasant nature. It was a good work because it was done in the name of and for the glory of God. The whole business of the city lying in shame as well as ruin is again brought into the forefront. Look at verse 17. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we'll no longer be in disgrace. You see, there's that problem. In his prayer to God concerning Jerusalem, Nehemiah made it clear that his concern for the city had more to do than with the notion that the Israelites were disgraced by the ruins. He calls Jerusalem, listen to this, The place God had chosen as a dwelling for his name. Chapter 1 verse 9. And in verse 11 he speaks of himself as one who delights in revering God's name. That's why the work's a good work. It's being done for God, for his glory to be exalted and his honor to be reestablished as the God of Jerusalem. I mean, think about it. With Jerusalem in ruin, God's reputation lay in ruin too. The enemy was given occasion to mock and ridicule as we see them doing in verse 19. Ha, ha, ha. Look at you Israelites, you're trying to rebuild the city walls. My point is this, that anything can become a good work for God when the motive of the heart is right and pure and true. We can build buildings or remodel them as a good work. We can shovel snow and chop ice off the walk as a good work. 
We can clean up sewer water and fix broken pipes. That's a good work. We can clean and scrub for those who are unable to help themselves because of illness, and it'll be a good work. We can babysit a young couple so they can have a night off together. We can visit the elderly in the shut-ins. We can mow one's grass for free. These are all good works, or can be. There's no end to what can constitute a good work for God. Sadly, some of the things we usually think of as being good work for God, preaching, teaching His Word, having a Bible study, a prayer meeting, can be done in the flesh... And for the approval of others, the Pharisees are notorious or were notorious for that. So that all the goodness to the work is destroyed. Jesus said, oh, they like praying on the street corners to be seen of men. And what does he say? They have their reward. If they think that that has merit with heaven and with God, they're greatly mistaken What they wanted was the praise and accolade of men. They got the praise and accolade of men. They have their reward. That's what they wanted. That's what they got. But there's nothing eternal about that. There's nothing saving about that. All the goodness, the spiritual goodness, was destroyed in it. So I'm asking us to be discerning in these matters, to strive to do all that we can with a conscious realization that God's glory is at stake. Why are we working? Why are we doing what we do? And then thirdly, there are certain tasks which only the people of God can do. And the unbelieving and the unrepentant have no part in it. This is quite a statement. Nehemiah told Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem, all three of them pagans, we, speaking of God's servants, we, servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. Well, I can just see the swords coming out of the sheaves, can't you? <laughs> you talk to us that way? Off with your head. Very dangerous thing to say to these guys. But they said it. They were saying, this is our city. This is God's city. We are God's people. You are not God's people. We'll do the building. You take a hike. Today on the temple site of Jerusalem sits a golden Arab mosque called the Dome of the Rock. But Nehemiah's words to Geshem the Arab in our text is as true today as it was when he said it. You have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. That's the underlying philosophy behind the Jewish protests to the Arab occupation of Jerusalem and other parts of Palestine. This is our city, not your city. 
This is our temple, not your temple. But there is in Jerusalem, which is superior to a physical city, a Palestine. There is a different Jerusalem. It's the heavenly Jerusalem described in Revelation 21. As and Let me read it for you. The holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be their God. Verse 2, verse 3. And explains that the new Jerusalem is the bride of Christ, his church. Those who comprise the inhabitants of the new Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem now, are those to whom God himself has given spiritual drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. In other words, free. God's salvation is always free. You cannot buy it. You cannot do anything to earn it. Not baptism, not your good works, not your prayers, not your tears for the wrongs that you have done, not turning over a new leaf to make amends for past sins. None of this qualifies a person to become a citizen of the New Jerusalem. These good works are not good enough. You will have no part in the heavenly Jerusalem if you think that way. One day the Jews asked Jesus this question. What must we do to do the work God requires? And they were talking about salvation. And Jesus answered, the work of God is this. To believe in the one that he has sent. John 6 verse 29. But having said that, this was a work that they could not do because verse 35 says, or verse 36, excuse me, you have seen me, says Jesus, and still you do not believe. You can't do it. Their hearts were full of unbelief, and so they had no part or portion in Christ. And in the coming new Jerusalem. Believing God, believing God is not in the heart of sinful man. Well, I, I know. I've run into people who say, well, I believe in God. And if you probe a little bit and you question a little bit, you will find, you will find that the God they believe in is not the God of the Bible. It's a God of their own imagination. And of course they believe in the God of their own imagination, their own configuration, their own invention. But when you start explaining the God of the Bible and his holiness and his requirement for repentance and faith and trust in his son, Jesus, oh, oh, then they start to back up. And they backpedal. Suddenly that's not the God they believe in. Well, what God do they believe in? The God of their own imagination. 
the God that they invented and made for themselves. Believing God is not in the heart of sinful man. Faith is not a work that sinners can do. Faith is God's gift to those he grants life to. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one can come. I think I can come. No, you cannot. I want to come. No, you do not. I've said to people at times, all the people in hell wanted to be there. And they go, oh, come on. Yeah, they did. That's the heart disposition. Say, well, why would you say that? Because they will not come to Christ. Cannot come and will not come. They even talk about hell as, well, at least I'll be down there with my friends. Who are those on the outside of the new Jerusalem that are never granted admission into the heavenly Jerusalem? Let me read it for you. This is not fiction. Revelation 12, verse 8. John writes, Who are they on the outside? Looking in. He says, The cowardly. The cowardly. No umption in their gumption to commit to Christ. The cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars. Their place, I'm reading, will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Revelation 12, verse 8. John is saying the same thing that the Israelites said to the Arabs concerning Jerusalem. He's saying, you have no inheritance rights to heaven. You may think you have a right to this place, but you don't. And you will not have any right until you come to an end of yourself and say with Nehemiah, the God of heaven will give me success. Salvation is his gift. We receive it by faith. And if not, then we have no part in the new Jerusalem. May God give us the faith. May he give us the repentance. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. It is powerful and it is cutting. And in this case, it is rather humbling to think There is nothing in us or about us that makes us want God and his salvation. What we want is the God of our imagination and the salvation that we dreamed up. We want heaven on our terms, not God's terms. We want salvation based upon the things that we think are important, not the things 
that God says are important. Being the wheeler dealers we are in life, just trying to scratch out a living and feed our families and take care of all that's necessary for life in this sinful world, we have come to believe that uh, if we're going to make it to heaven, it's going to be of our own effort. And we'll scratch and claw our way, and somehow we'll, we'll enter through the pearly gates when we won't. Help us to see. Salvation is of the Lord. It's his gift. We have to humble ourselves, repent of our sin, including the sin of self-sufficiency, the sin of thinking, I can do this, the sin of thinking, I'm better than the other person. And all the other things that the devil does to deceive us and make us think that, hey, I'm not as bad as so-and-so. I have a right to heaven. No, what we have a right to is hell and its torments. And that's what's going to be our portion unless, oh Lord, you save us. Unless you grant us faith and repentance, which we humbly plead for. Lord Jesus, save us today. Amen. Our closing hymn is from Trinity 342. 342 in the brown hymnal. Uh, I said Trinity, but I guess I'm wrong. No, I'm right. I just grabbed the wrong book. (laughs) Thank you, George. 342 in Trinity, which is the red book. I love this hymn. Christ is made the sure foundation. Christ is the head and he's also the cornerstone. Chosen of the Lord and precious, binding all the church in one. Holy Zion, help forever. And her confidence, her confidence alone is Jesus Christ. I love it. Number 342 in the Trinity. Thank you.
praise to God. Let me ask the question now. <clears throat> how many were planning to be at church tonight? Two, three. Okay. <laughs> I'm thinking we're going to cancel for cancel church tonight, if that's all right. Three, and that makes me four. <laughs> so, I know there's a lot of people away on uh, camping and vacationing, so I think we'll cancel for tonight. Uh, be in prayer. We, we as a church uh, are thinking about doing some remodeling out here, and that has to be approved, and think, think about that. Uh, it's been proposed uh, by the deacons that we tear out the baptistry and make the vestibule wider, bigger. Uh, say, what are we going to do for baptisms? Well, we're going to do them in the summer, and we'll find a warm stream or whatever, not this little river up here. <laughs> That's never warm. That's always cold. But someplace nice and warm uh, where we can also be a testimony to the community uh, if we have baptisms available. So just think about it. Uh, we'll bring that up uh, with a, an item of business. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, bless it to our hearts. Uh, we are humbled by your word to realize that uh, you do challenge us in our thinking and in our behavior. We see Nehemiah, why, wow, what a uh, godly man he was and how you used him to set things right for the people and to uh, the way he put it let's get on with the good work he he thought of the work of rebuilding jerusalem as the as the good work for god i'm wondering lord if we think of our labors as being good work for god we need to think that way and there's plenty of work to do it's not that uh, most of us are just tired of work uh, there's so much that has to be accomplished but, Lord, we know that if we uh, put our hand to the plow and God is in it, you will strengthen us and you will help us to serve you well. We do thank you for our building. We thank you for <clears throat> how you have provided for us financially and how you care for all of our needs. We're able to pay our insurance, my salary, uh, health insurance, all of those things that are part of just maintaining a godly witness in the neighborhood. We praise you for that. We thank you for it. And pray that you will bless us with a good day today in Christ's name. Amen.
discuss it. Yeah.